Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashkiss and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IB Green Minds podcast. My name is Guy Wilkinson and this week I have the pleasure of introducing Iggy Bassi. Iggy is the founder and CEO of Servest, a climate intelligence platform using earth science, artificial intelligence for smarter asset scale decisions. Iggy has previously built a sustainable integrated agribusiness in West Africa, which attracted investment from notable names and investors such as Acumen Fund, Gates Foundation, Soros, Root Capital, Syngenta and the World Bank. He's frequently invited to speak on issues of climate change, AI, security and inclusive markets. So Iggy, it's a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, and thank you for having me on, Guy. Great, thank you. Um, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about your career to date, um, particularly your, your previous agribusiness? Uh, sure. So life started actually in investment banking. I used to be an M&A analyst in the tech sector back in the mid-90s and then did that for a couple of years. It's always a useful skill to pick up. And then after that, I moved into the world of management consulting. I used to work for a company called the Monitor Group. And we did all sorts of wonderful things, advise governments, countries on how to be more competitive and how to think about human capital development and whatnot. That was that was fun. But then I had the bug. Um, I got the software bug in late 1998. I set up my first software company, which is looking at data algorithms and how, how to do data matching. Built that up for a couple of years, ended up selling some of the IP to my investors, working for their, their new software business for about four years. Then went back into private equity and management consulting. And then about 12 years ago, I said, how do I marry everything I've learned with making an impact? And I was fortunate enough to have done some work for some large family offices that were looking to deploy capital into areas where markets could be used as a force for good. Um, so sort of what they call market-based solutions. So I actually ended up building a farm in West Africa of all places, Guy. <laughs> I went to Ghana, Lehman's had just crashed. Um, really couldn't get any money. So I just kept self-financing for the first yeah, six, seven, eight months. And then suddenly I found this concept called impact investing. And then I got Acumen Fund to um, make an investment. And I got some of the great and good uh, people who are interested in that fusion of economic development through, through markets in emerging markets. So fairly fortunate. And that actually taught me a lot because I had moved away from PowerPoint and Excel and you know all the usual stuff that I'm sure many of your listeners do into building a dirt track, building an airstrip, um, looking at fields, uh, plowing through mud, trying to order tractors. I even went to Eastern Europe on New Year's Day once to try and get a a crop duster. (laughs) So wonderfully exciting stuff. Um, And we grew the business into an um, integrated food and agricultural business. So we forward integrated into uh, food products. That was great. But something was happening by the second, third, fourth, fifth harvest. We were noticed that our ability to predict crops and weather systems um, was getting a little shaky. Um, Something was not quite right in the data or in the scientific models or in the weather systems. So when I sold the business in 2015, I decided to look at this problem and say, why is it that the world's biggest problem that we face in terms of climate risk is trapped in all these wonderfully complex scientific models, right? and why can't and why can't we use them? Right. So, like a good analyst, I called many many people. I said, "How do you think about the climate risk?" They said, "Well, we all care, but we don't really know what it means for us." Right. And I think what I saw there was a gap. It's a gap that I I felt on the farm as well. That 
once I care about climate change generally, I specifically care about my assets, right? What's going to happen to my assets and how can I make a better intervention, whether I'm looking at net zero, whether I'm looking at adaptation risk. So I said, well, okay, well then why don't we think about some smart machine learning that can fuse all these complex sciences together, which all come at different spatial temporal scales. But surely there has to be a better way that we can use advanced science mathematics to fuse all these things together. And actually, funnily enough, I, I, I met a professor at Imperial College of, of all places, uh, but he was in the maths department and he was a bit of a Bayesian god. Um, Bayesian is a branch of statistics that we use. And he said, um, I can help you with this problem. This is a mathematical problem. <laughs> like all mathematicians, everything's a mathematical problem. <laughs> and it was actually some of his work that um, inspired me to say, okay, fine, maybe there is a mathematical route to this, which could ultimately lead into artificial intelligence. Initially, mainly focus on statistical modeling, machine learning models. So he brought some of his students along, and I'm glad to say that some of them are still working for um, Sylvester or their collaborators. We're funding one of them through a PhD. Um, so the first couple of years was largely spent guy just playing with agricultural data because that was my background. So we looked at um, backcasting and forecasting capabilities to say, could we get enough useful signal to be decision useful in the sense that I don't want, just want to get a generalized view of yield. I want to know what's happened to that specific field or to that area or to that crop. But we asked ourselves a question, can we look at many, many, many fields simultaneously and pick out trends and patterns. And in 2018, when we had the heat wave, we were fortunate enough to advise one of our clients to say, we see not just a pattern, we're seeing the same pattern in multiple geographies. So if I was you, I would think about forward pricing or think, thinking about locking in a price with some of your key producers, right? And there was a generalized heat wave across Europe in 2018. Mm -hmm. But it was also in 2018 and early 19, I said, this is not just a food and agricultural problem. Everybody needs to get smart on the climate system. So how do we think about creating mass climate literacy in the next couple of years? And I convinced my investors in 2019 that we should not only service food and agriculture, we should look at multiple sectors. And actually, what's the common unit of analysis that really combines all sectors together? And it's really assets, whether the physical assets, natural assets. I said, why don't we start mapping the world's assets? And why don't we start automating? And by then we had managed to automate one or two signals, useful signals like heat. Um, so I said then over time for every single asset that's on the platform, we can automate the climate science by asking ourselves some basic questions. What's already happened to either to the asset or to the location where the asset is over the last 30, 40, 50 years? I think now we go back um, across all of our assets about 50 years. Because remarkably, Guy, a lot of large companies have no what we call institutional memory. They don't know what's happened to those assets in the last 30, 40, 50 years because we've never kept, never really kept a system of record, right? You could go into a large company and ask them for the financial statements or their risk statements or their FX statements. You cannot ask them about their climate risk statements because they've never collected them. Yeah. So whether you're a billion-dollar company or whether you're a tiny company, whether you're a sovereign government, you actually don't have a consolidated view of what's happened in terms of climate risk. And we found that really strange. So we said, then why don't we build these systems of records for you, right? Let's look at all of your assets under company X and start developing a view of what's already happened, what will happen, when will it happen, and what dimension of risk is likely to impact you the most. One thing we learned early on um, in climate is 
there's not a single variable that has the explanation power to give you the confidence to say, I should take action A rather than action B, right? So we moved away from univariate modeling into multivariate modeling to say, let's look at multiple risks and multiple hazards together over that asset. Because Guy really wants to know not just the flood risk, he also needs to know this concept of compound risks, like we're seeing now in the States, for instance, you're seeing extreme temperatures that they've never seen before. But related to that risk is um, forest fire risk, potential drought risk as well. So how do you look at a combination of risk together? And that's where the sort of Bayesian statistics really comes in for us to say, how, how can we start tying multiple outcomes, but downscale it down to an asset? Because we have to get asset because guys only going to listen if we tell him what's going to happen to his asset. I mean, he may care about I don't know, East, East Anglia, but he really cares about his own asset. Mm-hmm. How do we get that specificity? Because it does change or rebalances the psychological relationship that most people have with climate, which is to say, it's a future state problem. It's not a problem today. It's not a problem for me. But if I was to turn around and say, well, guy, if you don't take this necessary action on your asset, you could lose X amount of EBITDA valuation. You may not get access to affordable insurance. You may not get the uh, the financing that you're looking for over time, right? So in 2019, we started building out the platform. 2020 uh, was a tricky year because of COVID. So we've, we we dropped some of our natural um, capital work and we moved over to the built environment work first because we had to, we had to sort of focus basically um, during COVID. But interestingly, during COVID, okay, we noticed a sharp uptake in people wanting to find out about their climate risk. I think COVID had sharpened the minds around the risk frameworks. How do we think about risk as a government, as an enterprise, as a board? And suddenly there was lots of rumblings last summer about, you know, someone's going to produce a climate tech report. And suddenly, you know, the market just took off. So we did a fairly large Series A um, early part of this year to help build to help build a platform right? because we are trying to build something that could provide um, climate intelligence, which is really business intelligence for managing your, your um, assets from a, from a climate point of view. We want to service large enterprises. We want government to use a platform, but we also want capital markets to say, how do I reprice my risk? Right. Because I think capital markets are desperately um, short in terms of understanding how do I quantify climate risk? But fundamentally, how do, I, how do they reprice their credit, their equity, their bond prices, knowing that certain risks will happen over time, right? Should they be taking you know, 15-year terms on specific assets in specific locations? Ultimately, we want banks to say, Guy, you should take, we should, we should invest in your asset here. And we should give you this financing, but this should be your adaptation plan for X percentage of your assets that could, for instance, be underwater, that could be subject to heat stress or unusual wind patterns over time, right? So by learning multivariate risk, it also allows us to say, how do we make recommendations at an asset scale over time? And that's where the very clever machine learning will come in over time. We don't do that yet. It's something that we're working working towards. Right now, we're still mapping the world's assets. So we have the first um, 175 million assets that we're launching um, in quarter four this year. We already started onboarding 20 large companies who are quite asset intensive companies, um, and they want to know what's the physical risk, what's already happened. Some of them are quite alarmed once you present them with asset scale across thousands of different assets, and they can finally see what's happened to their assets. Like, oh, we didn't know this was happening over here. We didn't realize that this risk had particularly accelerated in these parts of the world, or looks like where we were planning our growth or our acquisitions 
looks like they're likely to see some very extreme types of, um, I mean, we worked with a large um, hotel group. They realized that growing in certain coastal locations may not be may not be so favorable in the next 20, 30 years, right? So what kind of building should they put up? How do they think about the height of the building? How do they think about the elevation of the building? How do they think about the, the sort of flood risk um, of that asset as well, right? Because if you're building assets that are there, for 30, 40, 50 years, you have to start encoding climate intelligence in the design phase of your actual building, in the financing phase of your building, right? Well, it seems quite a few further steps than I thought. I think I even realized. And I'm particularly surprised by um, the fact that you go back historically and a lot of organizations aren't really aware of the climate risk that they've already been susceptible to over the past few decades. Um, yeah. A lot of scenario analysis providers have great products mm -hmm. but i guess a key element for investors is to report transparently to stakeholders so where do services like service fit in seeing as it's potentially difficult to compare results between different providers yeah that's that's a great question so we asked ourselves a couple of years ago one of the challenges with climate is everyone needs to get literate on climate fast right and also we need to avoid certain you know, um, asymmetrical positions that people take when they have privileged information. If what we can't afford in the next 10, 10 or 15 years is for one set of actors to get really smart on climate risk and the others not to, because it's not a zero sum game, right? <laughs> the whole system needs to get smart, right? It's no point me getting smart and, and guy not getting smart because if his assets are really risky, I don't gain from that, right? So we said, why don't we, take all the world's assets and put them onto an open platform where everybody can see a certain level of risk on that asset. I can see Guy's asset, he can see my assets. We have this concept of, I see what you see, right? It creates a level playing field on day one and it's independent, right? So we don't, we don't have some special black box that we say we're not gonna tell the world in terms of what kind of risks we measure, what kind of data sources we use. We, in fact, we only use peer-reviewed science. We use the most authoritative science we can find or data feeds we can find, which are already trusted, right? Our unique skill is the fusion of all these complex sciences with, which come at different spatial temporal scales and say, how do we fuse them together at an asset level to really inform Guy what's gonna happen to his asset, right? Um, so that's the big difference between us. I think everybody needs to be able to see everyone else's risk at, before the paywall, behind the paywall, then people can bring additional data sets to their, to their dashboards or to their APIs to say, for instance, they can look at depreciation cycles, they can look at valuation models. So we have an um, econometric um, piece that we add on behind the paywall, because obviously we don't want that public to be that sort of data to be in the public domain, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain level that everybody should be able to see, even if they were just doing a rapid x-ray on their supply chain or on their B2B partners or on their portfolios, for instance, they need to know quickly at an asset scale what's already happened and what's the probable risk of something happening within the term of a loan, for instance, right? Or if you're, if you're my critical B2B partner, I can now see independently, I can look at the factory that sends me my, I don't know, microchips and say, looks like Guy's going to see all these risks in the next 10, 10 or 15 years. Then we can have a grown-up conversation to say, Guy, what is your plan? Right? Looks like you're going to see twice as much flooding, 15 times as many heat days or heat stress days over a threshold. What is your plan to keep your factory running and supply me, right? Yeah. But we can, he can see yours and she can see, you know, we, we need that bilateral view. And I think that's fundamental. Cool. I was wondering, 
um, on sort of your, your journey of building Sylvest, if there's anything that's particularly surprised you with respect to climate risk specifically, has anything jumped out as, as being like, oh my God, we're really in that bad a situation or, oh, this isn't as bad as we thought? Um, I think one of the, one of the realizations is how many people need to get climate literate in a in the time frame let's let's just take the paris airline time frame right how on earth in the next 10 to 12 years are we going to get millions and millions and millions of decision makers smart on how do they deploy new capital how do they manage their current assets for instance how do they grow and that is that is deeply complex guys so we turn to look at things like digital technologies networks why don't we turn climate intelligence into a network where everybody can benefit because I don't I can't think of any other set of technologies that can really really disseminate the power of climate knowledge um, over the masses as fast as digital technologies and networks so we always joke at dinner parties that you know we're, we're kind of a fusion of a social media platform with some precision science right <laughs> Imagine if we could do that, because you don't want to create imbalances with climate information. And I think that would be detrimental, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, there are many surprises, but one, one thing has been very consistent. Most of the climate forecasting has played out in the way people said it would play out. Mm. Um, do you perceive that there's a gap between the data that Service provides, what that can tell investors? and how it's actually being used. And if, if there is a gap, what do you think is necessary to, to bridge that gap? So I would say, first of all, you need to create an independent dimension to your, to your information, right? Um, I, and people often ask me, are you an ESG provider? And I say, no, because I don't think the E is working particularly well. And I don't really want to feed into that E, right? Because I don't think any ESG provider can reprice risk today, can reprice a bond. Re, you know, and I, that's essentially what we want to do, because ultimately you need the power of capital markets to reward good companies over time, but to penalize the bad ones. Right? You need the ability to reprice because we haven't priced that externality for 150 years. Right? We have to use financial instruments and we have to have green bonds to reward low carbon, low physical risk assets. We have to, we have to start differentiating capital, right? So credit cannot just be credit to the next five years. Is it climate smart credit or is it not? And if it's not, why are you deploying that credit, right? So this is where the disclosure laws will be incredibly helpful for us and, and actually for the world. So we can start deploying financial instruments which are climate aligned. And by, by climate aligned, I don't just mean setting net zero, I also mean from a physical risk point of view, because there are two sides to this equation of climate risk, even though you hear about net zero all the time, it needs to work in tandem with understanding and quantifying your physical risk and think, then thinking about adaptation, right? It's quite easy to set targets for the next 20, 30 years and say, I'm gonna take out two, three, four, 5% of my emissions every year. Absolutely needs to be done. And because the faster we can do that, then the less GHG we put into the environment and make it even more unstable. But at the same time, we're going to live through instability for the next, actually for the bulk of this century. We will see very extreme temperatures. The world will be wetter and drier and more extreme in different parts of the world in patterns that humans haven't lived through before. So we don't really know what the next four, five, six, seven decades look like, but we know it's going to be volatile, irrespective of the emission profile. Mm. And that's important to understand. I'd be interested to get your perspective 
with obviously yourself being in in the sort of risk market so to speak how how much is climate risk being priced into um bonds and stocks at the moment if at all um and what what timeline do you expect it to be implemented um so i hope within five or six years we have the tool the technology the political world the regulatory frameworks to say why are we just putting five percent of or ten percent of our capital into things like esg markets right why not hundred percent right are they pricing today no um are they not if i often ask senior bankers um do you think forward climate risk is priced into your assets today they just shake their head actually some of them said i actually don't want to know <laughs> and this is some of the challenge because obviously um long term we don't have long-term incentive schemes for bankers um, really we have your ability to deploy credit fast within a calendar year and then see what happens right then as long as you stay within the risk models of the bank it's fine by them right I think we need to change the way we think about deploying capital. And this is where stakeholder pressure is going to be fairly key. But also, I think it's shown that quite a few sustainability-focused indices, companies, behaviors are outperforming traditional companies now for the first time. I think the transitional risk is going to be quite heavy for um, capital markets, right? So so as the pace of technology is, and we don't know what the policy framework is going to look like in the next 10 or 15 years. So... You can, you can start imputing different um, scenarios, but until you can get down to asset level transactions and say, I truly understand the, my exposure to this specific asset, both from a transition physical risk point of view, then you're not really repricing the risk. Thank you for that. I wanted to go on to some more sort of practical advice questions as well. Um, something that struck me is you seem to have got very lucky with the investors that you've intra- attracted, not just at Sylvest, but in your previous uh, ventures as well. I was wondering if you had any advice for any of our listeners who might be looking to gain investment as to how yeah. the best way to, to do that. Well, my first advice is don't rely on luck. <laughs> um, I think you always need to sell the vision. What are you trying to solve for? Because I, I like complex problems. I, I mean, I looked at food security and now I'm looking at the climate risk. I didn't really have any revenues to show to the customers. I didn't really have a product um, to show end to end, but I'm saying, if we get this right, this is what we can create. Have a look at what we built so far, have a look at where we're going and ask yourself the question, if we get this right, can we build a new category? Does it solve a big problem? Can there be mass usage for this, right? And yeah, luckily we've had quite a few conversations and um, POCs with some clients over the last four or five years, the investors brought into the strategy. And the strategy is largely around category creation. Can we create a new category around climate intelligence? Right. So, yeah. And I, th- I think, again, um, five or six years ago, it was very difficult to raise $30, $40 million um, for climate for Series A, particularly for an analytics intelligence platform. Um, today, I think that challenge has um, changed. I think, um, I think the stakeholders have pushed the market forward. I think society has pushed the market forward. I think regulations and regulators have pushed the market forward. So, all of a sudden, it is possible, but you still have to be bold and you still have to sell a vision and you still need a very compelling product at the end of the day, guy. right? So it's not just about raising capital. It's about delivering value to your customers so they can make better decisions. Great. Thank you very much. And I was wondering how Sylvester's found remote work uh, this year. A lot of companies now are going back to the office or forcing their workers going back to the office, uh, particularly the financial institutions. I was wondering what your out, your view on that was. Um. It's a challenge. <laughs> There's no question. 
I think I think it's a generational challenge as well. I often find that people who have been working for you know 15, 20 years, um, they quite like the face-to-face. Um, but we, you know, I mean, we have to grow. We have to think about the new norms. Um, so we've also became a B Corp recently as well. And so it was interesting because I think our carbon footprint from traveling back and forth on the tube and <laughs> um, traveling into multiple geographies, I think that's all radically changed. So. I think some of the dynamics are lost. I'm, I'm not going to lie, guy. I think some of the dynamics are lost. Now, how do you repeat those through things like Zoom and better tools? And maybe there's a there's a right framework for working, meeting once a week, twice a week. I know we've kept the office, and I, I'm sort of noticing the last three or four months that the office is becoming busier and busier. Um, but we want to give the freedom. At the end of the day, we want talent to do great work and to be aligned to our mission, whether they're working from their bedroom in their boxer shorts or whether they're in the office wearing their jeans. I actually don't care so much. <laughs> nice point out that though the, the listeners can't can't see this video. Iggy is wearing clothes at the moment. And, and, and <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> uh, swim shorts underneath and shirt on the top <laughs> but actually one thing one thing that remote working has done it is it's allowed us to shop in a broader geographically dispersed talent pool right so i think we have like 12 people across europe now when uh prior to covid we had zero right so um we've just expanded in the state as well so we've hired there so i think people just need to work asynchronously now and where they can work together fantastic but i think some of the tools have become so much better it's like some of the collaboration tools that we have but it's slack it's um there's a whole bunch of sort of collaboration software tool that we have which i think is useful but there's still every, every now and then i just i still have to go and meet humans i'm afraid yeah also. i think i i think likewise i prefer to have a face-to-face interaction i think overall my, I, I didn't wear glasses before COVID and now I have to wear glasses, which is a shame. Um, so you've just raised 30 million and you're you're building the platform at the moment. What's the sort of five-year plan for, for Sylvester? Um, our goal is to try and put as many of the world's assets onto a singular platform. Um, because the more intelligence we have in a central hub, the more accountability we can drive, the better decisions we can drive, and also the better learnings we can drive. Because we have a standardized method, um, methodology for measuring risk. So whether you're in the real estate sector in um, Berlin, Argentina, New York City, we have a standardized methodology for measuring physical risks over, over um, different timeframes. Increasingly, I want to be able to go down deeper onto the asset. Like what's the material composition of the asset? What's the depreciation cycle? What's the age of the asset, right? Because for us to ultimately generate an Earth recommendation engine to say what's going to happen to this asset, what should Guy do over time, we still that's a still that, that's just a long way to go, Guy. Right? First of all, let's just get the first tenants of a mass intelligence system, which is basically a network where people can build their own portfolios of their assets. So we just released um, to some of our select clients something called EarthScan, and it'll be available for general availability in quarter four. But that allows the companies um, like these asset um, intensive companies to build their portfolios and ask themselves and self-analyze what's already happened to their assets over what time frame, and which risk are they likely to see um, affecting their asset the most, the least, the fastest in the, short, the shortest time frame, right? Both as a single asset, but also as a portfolio of assets. So 20 large companies have signed up. I think we're about to get the next 20 as well. So and you have to remember, Guy, that most companies are, don't have a climate department, right? So there's a there's a big education component to this as well. Mm-hmm. So we're launching something in quarter four as well around how do we train 
how do we train people in understanding climate intelligence? What does it mean to look at a statistical or, or a Gaussian curve or something? Right? What does that mean to people? What does confidence levels mean? Because even the smartest people that I know, you know, they shy away from looking at climate data, right? And we can't afford that. We absolutely, our product folks, our designers have to constantly think what's the most creative way so people can actually consume that data and make a better decision. They shouldn't be afraid of technical information. We want to hide that as much as possible. We want people to have a great user experience, but find it valuable because they will have to make better decisions over time. Great, thank you. Last couple of questions um, as, as a sort of uh, a summary. You've had a really, really varied career and obviously a very successful and exciting one as well. If you had any advice for our listeners as to perhaps uh, just career in general, or perhaps anything in the in the climate space specifically, where you think uh, the, the market is moving? I think career in general is follow your passion. I know that sounds banal, but I think you can't you can't go into a enterprise long term and not be happy as sort of what it is you do. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have married my passion with my career. So when people I say, oh, you know, how do you create a work life balance? I said, I don't. I create a work life integration. Right. So I'm very passionate about what I do. And once you find that passion. It's actually hard to contain it, right? Right, and and that some of that needs to spill over when you're talking to investors because you're selling something that has not been built. You're selling a big problem that you think you can help solve or co-solve. So you have to have a lot of passion because that comes through, right? So have a lot of conviction, a lot of passion. I would say, I mean, I was fortunate. I was classically trained banking consulting. So there's a there's a skill set which I think is quite useful long term, right? So I'm pretty old now, so I can. I always call back on my skills, right? Um, but also one thing I've learned is hire well and hire people who are smarter than yourself. As an entrepreneur, I am compelled to hire people who are only smarter than myself. You know, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> like, I don't want to waste shareholders money, you know, not hiring people who are smarter than myself. Right? <laughs> so I would say one thing I would do say to folks is from a, from a climate point of view, the climate issue is not an issue that can be solved, you know, through regulation, right? It's a state of affairs that will be with us for every, every one of the listeners on this call. This will be with you for the rest of your life. Volatility, change, net zero. There's huge amounts of opportunity in climate, right? You could be thinking about climate smart asset management, climate smart insurance, climate smart buildings, climate smart clothing, right? You have to add climate as a dimension to everything you do going forward. You just have to, right? Because so, it's not going away as a problem. So I would invite all of your people to think about, you know, business models that can solve a problem as well as making um, good returns at right. sort of acceptable risk levels, of course. Fantastic. Thank you. And one, one final question. If our listeners were to take away one point from this episode, what would you want it to be? Um, bugger. um listen I think, might have already said that said that in the last uh, in the last answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i'll just leave you to the last answer follow your passion right perfect thanks very much well thanks very much for coming on ib green minds today it's been a pleasure having you on the show and uh, everyone do go check out sylvester earth it's a really cool product wonderful guy um thank you very much for having me on